Hello there, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, coming at you with another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, our first episode or volume in the year of our Lord, 2020. And we seem to do these a lot. We seem to do them, I hate to say too often, but we're going to pay tribute to another wrestling great in the history of wrestling this past week. Soul Man Rocky Johnson passed away at the age of 75, and there's a lot to talk about with his career, uh, and fortunately, I don't have to talk about it alone. Joining me from the nice, soft, padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I want to give a warning. If you hear a strange sound uh, emanating from my end at some point during the recording that sounds like it's probably coming from the gates of Dante's Ninth Level of Hell... It's probably my cat. One of my cats apparently has sprained his ankle or hurt his foot somehow, and sometimes he forgets it's hurt and he tries to stand up, and he gives a blood-curdling growl slash hiss slash. Ow. We just have one, and he's kind of laying down sleeping right now. I gave him some pain meds, so let's hope that he's. we don't hear that. But if you do, I apologize. And if I have to step out for a second, I'm sure Seth can carry the ball, and I hope our, our listeners will understand he's – I don't know. I've, I've been there before being an athlete myself, but how do you forget that your ankle's not good when you try to put weight on it? But I digress. Right. Now, for a lot of fans, I think it, the, the way I put it really is if you're under the age of 40, you probably associate Rocky Johnson mainly as being the father of The Rock because, of course, you know everybody knows that. But I think the argument could be made that Rocky Johnson had a – Hall of Fame worthy career in his own right. I mean, I think the argument is there at least. Do you, do you agree? Or sure, I think if for another reason he was groundbreaking, being a, a man of African descent. You know, I can't say African American because as we'll bring up, he wasn't from America originally. Uh, but I, I think that he was groundbreaking at a time uh, when wrestling, like much of the rest of the United States and Canada, was becoming. Uh, you know, equal rights movement, more more integrated. The days of the Jim Crow, you know, segregation were dying, and he was one of those guys at the forefront for that in the wrestling industry. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And really, just about everywhere he went, he had a lot of success. I mean, if, if he wasn't the main eventer, he was second or third from the top, had a lot of high-profile feuds. And when you factor that in, it all this happened before he had that tag title run – for Vince Sr. I think it was when Vince Sr. was, was running WWE at the I believe point. So. I, like, I, I, bl- I believe so. But when you consider that he was one of those that would work different territories at once, I think I think that's pretty impressive. I know we, we've said before, people like Roddy Piper did that. So a lot of times for several years, he might not have had that multi-year run in a territory. He would be come in for... I don't know if spot shows is the right the right term, but he'd come in for a short stint one place, then go to uh, another place, have a short run there, and you know rinse repeat. I mean, is that what you yeah, is that I, what they mean when they say spot shows? Like it's a yeah, well, a spot show is if you go back to the territory days, uh, all the all the territories have what they called their loops, you know, which were the same town on the same night of the week every week, and uh, unless it was the Northeast. Where because they had bigger cities, Boston, Philly, New York, they were the same. They were the same buildings, same towns, uh, like every two to three weeks. Um, which uh, I mean, I could go into length about how you had to be more creative in your wrestling. Then you couldn't do the same match every week in front of the same crowd because you essentially like when I was growing up here in Mid Atlantic territory where I was in Greenville, 
that was the Monday night show for the Crockett's. And we had that for years, you know, so <laughs> you're not going to have to, you're not going to have the same guys do the same match every Monday night. We as fans would get upset and a spot show would be the shows that would fill out the week. A lot of these territories, a lot of these bookers and promoters would leave a day or two in the week open for the smaller towns within the territory that didn't get a show every week. Um, and, uh, and later years, uh, as we moved into cable overlay, these were often when they moved away from studio wrestling and into actually, you know, having their syndicated television product be recorded at a, in front of a live crowd at a building. Those were what would be TV spot shows, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, but you also have to remember too, and what I think was, and I can't verify this, just my, just my speculation here with, with a guy like Rocky, uh, even even in the, the territories where you had a, a traditional weekly loop or a, a monthly loop like you had in the Northeast, uh, you would have two to three, maybe four big shows a year. We've discussed many times about you know the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know Easter weekend, Fourth of July, big time for for wrestling promotions that big shows. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you would have all of your main angles that have been progressing on television. Uh, on those shows, obviously, and often that's where they were, they were where, where, you know, you would blow off these angles, but you have to fill the whole card out. And this was an opportunity for guys who weren't tied to any particular territory or in a storyline in the territory to get a good payday because you're going to get paid off the door. So I get a feeling Rocky probably filled out some of those spots. You know, if, if, if Vince was running Madison Square Garden, Vince Sr., that is, once every every three to four weeks. He's probably going to run a big show twice a year at Madison Square Garden with all the top. Well, he's still got to have, you know, matches underneath that. Or here in the Carolinas, it would be, you know, a big show in Greensboro. If it was in Georgia, it'd be Atlanta. If it was, you know, uh, 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 Eddie Graham down in Florida, he might run a big show once every three months in like Miami. Or, you know, uh, uh, in a smaller territory like, say, Dallas for world class, they were going to run Dallas. But, yeah, they were going to have that two or three times a year they ran the big building in Dallas, you know, like the Reunion Arena. Where the, where the basketball team played. So you're going to have a you know, big, huge three-hour show, eight, nine matches. Well, the first five matches are going to be all your storylines. You've still got to bring in name stars that people have heard of to fill out the card. And that's where I think probably Rocky got a lot of those, those, those plays. Because he wasn't the only guy. You, I think you follow the logic I'm saying there. Why? I'm not sure, but I, I think that would probably be true with him in the era we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But to go to the beginning, uh, as you said, Rocky was born in Canada, Nova Scotia, and he actually trained to be a boxer at a young age. I mean, there there is this heartbreaking story about how his mother essentially kicked him out or gave up on him at, at, at the age of 13. So he was on his own uh, as a teenager, but he did study boxing. And I've, I've heard of that before. A lot of people that get into fitness or boxing or something like that, that it's a way of venting emotion, you know, if if that makes sense, you know, Uh, I've heard of a lot of weightlifters that would do that. But interestingly enough, when he was training to be a boxer, he befriended Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Obviously, people who don't even know boxing can probably recognize both both those guys. And I think that's really where kind of the pro wrestling appeal came from, because I think pro wrestling wouldn't be the same had there not been a Muhammad Ali. You know, I, I think he sure. influenced wrestling a whole lot. And George Foreman, I mean, he, he can cut a promo too. Sure. But, you know, it was around that time, I think he saw wrestling, and that's when Rocky decided he was probably going to try his hand at wrestling. Now, 
y'all should remember back then, this is long before the days of MMA. This is the day of K- days of kayfabe. So boxers and wrestlers kind of saw themselves as same side of the different coin or different side of the same coin, I should say, uh, combined with the fact that they both worked out a lot at the same gyms, you know, and almost all the states back then were regulated and they had commissions and the commissions was usually a boxing and wrestling commission. So there was just going to be a natural lot of crossover there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Seems, seems natural. But Rocky made his debut in Ontario. Now, if I have my territories correct, uh, Ontario, I mean, I've, I've heard it referred to as Maple Leaf Wrestling, but I think Maple Leaf Wrestling is more of a general term for the Canadian territories, right? Or, or was there an actual Maple uh, no, Leaf Ma- No, Maple Leaf, that sounds like it Maple Leaf would have been the Tunnies, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Maple Leaf would have been – here was the thing. Weird thing on that, getting off of Rocky for a second. Maple Leaf was like Ontario down into like Buffalo, and for years the Tunnies had a working deal with the Crockett's. And so you would see guys from Maple Leaf come down here to the Carolinas. The guys from the Carolinas go up there. And then when Vince Jr. took over and started going national, they stopped their deal with Crockett and got in bed with Vince. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely important for Vince Jr. because as he was trying to expand nationally and take over everything in wrestling, uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but it has something to do with laws in Canada, with uh, taxes. And Vince having somebody who was actually a Canadian citizen as the promoter in that area made things much easier for him to come over the border and run shows up there. So, yeah, okay, that was. Yeah. But but he ran it. I mean, the Tunnies ran the states too. Like I said, they ran like you know Syracuse, Buffalo, stuff right there on the border in like the New York area. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who may not know, uh, we said the Tunnies. That was Frank and later Jack Tunney. And yes, that was yep. the same Jack Tunney who had non screen role as the. WWE president uh, throughout most of right. the 80s. Right. If you if you break down, and we'll do this at some point, ladies and gentlemen, Canada, you had the Maritimes, which was his own territory, which was Nova Scotia, where he was originally from, and Newfoundland, Saint, you know, Prince, all that. And I cannot remember the name of the of the promoter, but it was Wrestling Grand Prix, was that. Then Maple mm-hmm. Leaf was or, 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 or Ontario. Then you had like, um, oh, some French loot, something. But that, was, that would have been uh, the Rougeau's father. You know, the Mountie, uh, but their father, uh, uh, Raymond Senior, was he Raymond Senior or Jack Senior? It was one of the two, but he ran like Quebec and French speaking Canada. Then, of course, you had um, Stu in Western Canada out in Calgary, and then all the way to the coast in, Va- in Vancouver, you had Al Tomko running big time wrestling. So that was Canada. It, 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 it was, they were all NWA members, but it was essentially a huge country with five territories in it. Okay. Yeah. And around this time, he also would have worked for Wildcat Wrestling, which was Stampede before it was Stampede. Right. I, th- I think Stu right. Hart would have still been uh, helping run oh. that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Stu had his finger in the pie of, of, of Calgary Wrestling for, oh, my gosh, 50 years, 60 years. Stu is wrestling in Calgary for all, all intents and purposes. So around this time... Rocky gets his first uh, bookings in the States after a couple of years in Canada, and that was uh, NWA Vancouver slash All-Star Wrestling, and that would have been like the Gene Kaniski, uh, Don Owen uh, area, no, right? Uh, no, that'd be, Al, that'd be Al Tomko. Al Tomko would okay. have running that. You wouldn't have got into Don Owen until you got down stateside into what we would call Pacific Northwest. But he did work there as well. I know that. Okay. And I do believe because they abutted each other, there was a lot of town exchanges in those territories, you know? You know, okay. You've heard me talk about before, uh, especially here in the southern territories, a guy could book himself in and out. On his way out, he would book, he could, 
let's say he was here in the Carolinas and he was finishing up and his next permanent territory was going to be Dallas, but he had a week in between. He could book himself in these spot shows we're talking about, you know, like a spot show in Alabama for the Fullers one night and then maybe a couple nights in Jackson, Mississippi and Greenville, Mississippi for Bill Watts before he gets to Texas. You see what I'm saying? I think a lot of that was going on up and down the West Coast between Al Tomko and and Kaniski up in in Vancouver, and then you got Don Owen right below them, and then uh, below them would be San Francisco with with Roy Shires, and then all the way down to LaBelle's in L.A. And you could see how guys could could do what I'm talking about up and down the West Coast, you know? Right, right. That's exactly what I was going to bring up next, because for a lot of years in the early to mid-70s, Rocky was mainly splitting his time between big-time wrestling in San Francisco, which would have been Shire, and NWA right. Hollywood, which would have been – that would have been Mike LaBelle at the time, right? Mike LaBelle at the time, yes. Right. But you look at some of these names that when he was still pretty early in his career that Rocky would tag team with or feud against, Pat Patterson, uh, Classy Freddie Blassie, uh, two names that are definitely Hall of Fame, and I believe it was – here where he formed kind of that long lifetime friendship with Pat Patterson. Because uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember it was when Dwayne, you know, the, the Rock was was breaking in and training. I think it was Pat Patterson that had called uh, Vince and said, uh, you need you need mm-hmm. to sign this guy yesterday or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah they'd heard he, they had heard he was training because uh, his NFL career wasn't going to work out. Of course, those that don't know. The Rock was a collegiate football player at the University of Miami of Florida uh, on a on a very vaunted defense as a defensive end. same same defense to produce guys you know like Ray Lewis and uh, Ed Reed and uh, Warren Sapp the all Hall of Fame NFL players you know these guys those those defenses and um, and it just didn't work out and so he said he wanted to go into wrestling and Rocky said he would train him and Rocky got a, you know didn't have a ring but he got a hold of a ring. And he started training him, and Pat went down there, and that's exactly the, the conversation as I understand it. Was he called Vince back after like just one day and said, "You need to sign this kid yesterday. You want him yesterday. He's that good, <laughs> you know." So uh, mm-hmm. it yeah, it is what it is, and, <laughs> and if it makes sense, if he had a run for those that don't know, you know, territories and stuff, because I know some of our younger listeners don't. San Francisco was a really strong territory in the '60s and '70s, and what made that territory light on fire was the heel tag team duo of Ray, the crippler Stevens and Pat Patterson blonde bombers, right? Yep, exactly. I mean, there've been many blonde bombers, uh, what Larry Latham and, 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 um, and, uh, Wayne Ferris, you know, honky talk man were the blonde bombers in the late seventies in Memphis. There've been a lot of different combinations that have gone, but that was, there were the original blonde bombers was, was Ray, the crippler. And for those that don't know, Ray Stevens is generally regarded as, the best in-ring guy in the business in the 60s. If that was Shawn Michaels in the 90s, if that was Flair in the 80s, if that was, I would probably say, Angle in the, in the 2000s, you know, mm-hmm. that the 60s was Ray Crippler-Stevens. And if you got in with Ray Stevens and you got in with, with Pat Patterson, you were, you were rubbing shoulders with some high cotton. You know, they were the reason why San Francisco was drawing a ton of money. And the Cow Palace, of course, was the biggest building there that they ran. It was one of those buildings they they didn't run every week, like I was talking about earlier. They only ran every once in a while. And and my and I th- I think it was yeah it was San Francisco. They much like New Japan historically had their big show at the beginning of the year, and it was always a huge battle royal. 
And I, I, I would, I think I can't verify this, but I think some of the idea for Royal Rumble probably came from that big, huge, and, and this was the show where Don, or sorry, Roy Shire would bring in the Andre the Giants and the Funk Brothers and the Harley Races and all the big stars from all over the country, uh, you know. And then he, of course, he put one of his own guys over in the Battle Royal, of course, right? Or Andre, one of the two. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that was that was his that was his big money maker every year, and. Um, I could see with him working that territory how you could if you were a top guy or you had potential why Pat Patterson you would become friends you know right right it ma- it makes sense now and and you I'm sorry, I'm not to cut you off but you said Freddie Blassie as well you know he was the same guy in the fifties and sixties for 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 LaBelle's in, in L A I mean everybody thinks gorgeous George and he was but Freddie Blassie was the other big star I think I've discussed before how Freddie Blassie was legitimately a mainstream star even back in the 50s. He was in like all the Hollywood newspapers, literally out on dates with like star like star like female starlets, you know, actresses. So, yeah, he's rubbing shoulders with the right guys. I was that's what I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, if you're in LA and San Francisco and you're rubbing shoulders with Freddie Blassie and Pat Patterson, you're not going to get much better for that era in pro wrestling, period. Right, right, makes sense. Now, I think most people know that Rocky married uh, uh, Ada Maivia, you know Peter Maivia's daughter. Now, did uh, Peter train Rocky, or did did they meet up? I, I, I seem to recall that Peter actually had. A hand I believe in he, he was already working. My understanding was that Rocky was already married to a woman. I can't remember Una. I think was her name, mm-hmm. and he had two children by her. And he met he met um, Ata one night after a show because he had tagged with with Peter. Probably San Francisco because Peter Maivia was a huge baby face in that territory. You know, he he flipped his time between San Francisco and then, of course, out in the islands, 50 state wrestling, Polynesian pro, that stuff out there in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and sh- they took an interest to in each other. Now, I don't I've never been made clear to me whether she knew at the time he was married still and had kids. Uh, but um, they started a relationship, that, which my understanding, Peter was not not really for at first, not because he didn't like Rocky. More mm-hmm. like he was just concerned with his daughter being married to a pro wrestler because he understood the the rigors that a family goes through, you know, with the dad being a wrestler, being on the road all the time. But it wasn't long after they met that, you know, here comes Dwayne, here comes Rocky. And I believe it was what long after or long before Rocky was born or long after, it was a few years after Rocky was born. He filed for divorce from his first wife and literally within a week had, had gotten a marriage license and married uh, Atta in Florida. So take that for what it's worth. That was exactly where I was going to go. What was when he met and fell in love with or married Atta that Peter Maivia was eventually was at first uh, against it for that exact same reason. He knew the, yeah, not, the problems. It had nothing to do with him as a person. It just had to do with the, his chosen profession, you know? Right. If anybody understands the rigors that a family goes through, uh, with one of the family members being one of the parents being a wrestler, it would be someone who is a wrestler. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. So Rocky was in California, better part of a decade between San Francisco and L.A., and then he has his first run in Georgia. Now, this would have been the mid seventies, and this would have been not actually not the Crockett's at, at at this point. Yeah, this would have been uh, the uh, Paul Jones or not the same Paul yeah, Jones that that passed right, recently. No, yeah, not you know, no, no, the, the one that passed even before that. Paul Jones, same name, different man, was the owner of Georgia, right? 
And of course, you had Gunkel in there until Gunkel died, and then there's the whole thing. We need to do an old episode on the on the on the the war in Georgia because it, it went off and on for a better part of ten years, you know. Oh yeah, and, and then ultimately ended with Black Saturday, and then the Crockett's buying it, and then it kind of died. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> right, there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts. The Briscoes are involved, and Oldie Anderson and Vince, and you can't write this stuff. It's better than a soap opera. Let's leave it at that, you know. <laughs> right. You have to understand here. Let me speak to this, and I, there's no way of avoiding this topic uh, when you're going to talk about uh, Rocky Johnson or any other black wrestler in this era. You have to remember, this was the South, this is Georgia. Uh, I could see a black star being much more accepted in the 60s in the, on the West Coast than I could in the South. You know, I often complain about how I think uh, people... <sighs> unknowingly or are or, or, or misinformed with the racism in the South. I, I want people to understand when I say that, I'm not saying racism didn't exist in the South. It did. Okay. It did. And it still does. What I'm saying is, is that, that it, 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 it changed slower here than it did in other parts of the country. That's all I'm saying, you know? And, uh, you got to remember we're only 10 years removed from the civil rights act and the government did not, the federal government did not force, uh, the, 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 the state governments in the South to fully integrate schools and other things right away. They gave him like a, like a 10 year window to do it. So you're coming into Georgia in the mid seventies, you're right at the end of that window when finally all the schools are fully integrated, you know? And so one of the things was, uh, just, it was what it was. I'm not saying I agree with it for those that want to, you know, write terrible blog posts to me. I'm don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just telling you how it was. Most territories, all over the country, even outside of the South, but especially in the South, you only had one black star. And he almost, almost always was a baby face with the, with the mentality being we cannot have a, a heel black on top because all the white people will hate him and then we'll lose our black audience because they don't want to boo one of their own. That was the mentality. So you almost you only had, usually only had one black star per territory. He was usually a baby face and he was never on top. He was usually like the he was like the un underneath baby face. You know, he'd be like the, the semi main event with once again, the logic being we can't eventually put this baby face black guy over the white heel because there'll be riots. I know this sounds crazy by 2020 standards, but you have to understand the time period we're talking about, you know. Right. Um, and so you would often see a handful of, of, of black stars at the time, but they were never in the same territory at the same time. You didn't really start seeing that until the late 70s, early 80s, mostly early 80s, like Mid-South when Bill Watts had Butch Reed turn on Junkyard Dog. And, you know, and you had that was the top feud. Right. Uh, and then the other exception, of course, would be there. And there were exceptions to all rules. Ernie Ladd, of course, is a great exception. He was a heel everywhere he went. He was a top guy mm -hmm. everywhere he went. He was all over the South. You also had, uh, you know, Bearcat Wright before that, you know, and Sailor Art Thomas. But these are outliers. These are not the norm. And even with that, I mean, uh, Sailor Art Sailor Art Thomas was usually a babyface, but he was a heel in some places too, you know. And, and I know in that era, you're looking at you know Rocky Johnson, Thunderbolt Patterson, Ernie Ladd. I don't even think Butch Reed had started yet, so there weren't a whole lot of like big time black stars running around. So you would only have one in the territory at a time, you know. Right. Rufus R. Jones, uh, Tiger Conway Jr. was one we had here. Um, but I'll get to that when I talk about Rocky's run here in the Carolinas and the two of them. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, while we're on the subject of Georgia here, to kind of go along with what you had said about breaking through and after the civil rights movement and all that, not, this is where 
I think Rocky really started making history as far as that civil rights, you know, racial barrier, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. because he was the first black Georgia heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. And he also held the tag titles at the same time, briefly, but he was the Georgia heavyweight champion and the Georgia tag champion with Jerry Briscoe. Again, another Hall of Fame level name there. And he would get world title shots against Jack Briscoe. Mm-hmm. So right there, you have uh, some pretty big things to consider uh, what, right. what he was doing and what he was accomplishing. And this was only, what, probably around eight, ten years into his career here. Sure. And you got to remember back then, uh, it isn't like today where a guy can, you know, a few years and he's on Vince's television. Back then, you had to really hone your craft and pay your dues before you got a top spot in a, in a bigger money territory like Georgia. Um, I'm not taking anything away from Rocky. I just caveat here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you were a top guy, and when I mean top guys, I don't mean the tippy top guy in the territory. I mean like one of those four or five guys that were figured in and that were presented on television to the fans as a top guy. Much in the in, much in in the, in the vein of of our last episode where we talked about unpopular opinions and Ronnie Garvin's run. Ronnie was not the top baby face here in the Carolinas at the time, but he was one of the top baby faces in the fans. The way he was presented on television, Rocky would have been one of those guys, and. I'm not saying it's anything to sneeze at because it's not, but all those guys probably got a shot when the world champion came to town at, in, in, in a calendar year. Because if it was a big territory like, say, Georgia or the Carolinas or the Northeast for Vince Sr. or you know, Mid-South, you were going to get the world champion more often than a smaller territory like, say, Gulf Coast or Central States or, or, or you know, Kansas City, whatever you want to call it. You know, They were going to get the world champion maybe twice a year. A place like Atlanta or Charlotte or New York, we're going to get the world champion maybe four or five times a year. And you can't you can't have the same guy facing the world champion every time they come in. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Unless, unless, and I know people are going to, I'm, I'm going to say this stuff, wait a second, crazy train, but what about 1982 in Dallas? Yes, every time Harley and, and Ric Flair came in as the world champion, they were facing one of the Von Erichs, but that was an ongoing storyline. You have to remember there was a lot of pull out, there are a lot of machinations behind the scene to get David, Kevin, or Kerry a, a legitimate run with the world title. Uh, who we've we've speculated before we think it was going to go to David, but then it you know wound up being a short run for Kerry out of respect for that after David's death. But that was why that happened in Dallas. So that once again was was the exception to the rule. Most of the time, you know, I remember those days as an early fan when Harley and, and Rick were the world champion, and they would come in here to the Carolinas. Well, if he came in, like, say, in February, we might see him against Steamboat, who's a babyface, right? And then we might not get the world champion again until late spring, so like May. Uh, And this time, he might be feuding with Greg Valentine, who was a heel. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You're not going to put him against the same guy. But the fact that Rocky was in that mix is impressive. You know what I'm saying? That he was Mm -hmm. able to be that level of a guy, no matter what territory he went to, that when they got the world champ, he was in consideration for one of the guys that got the – you wanted to wrestle the world champion because back then you got paid off of the house. And the whole point of bringing in the world champion was twofold. Uh, one, it was to give rub to your local guys because the world champion was leaving and your local guys were staying. And you needed to elevate them in the eyes of, of, of your local fans. It did that. Uh, and, and the best world champions, all the guys we mention all the time, the Funks and J- Jack Briscoe and Gene Kaniski and, and Harley and Ric Flair and Dusty, 
These were the guys that could come in and do that, you know? Uh, and uh, that was the first thing. But the second thing, I, you hear me say all the time, wrestling is a business. The biggest reason why you brought the world champion was money. He popped a house. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in a territory like Georgia, uh, you could see legitimately, you know, if they're, if they're drawing seven to 9,000 on average in Atlanta once a month, you know, in, in the old Fox Theater, well, you bring in the world champion. Now you have to move from the old Fox Theater to the old Omni, which seats like 15,000, and they'll put 12 or 13,000 in there. That's like a, that's like a four or $5,000 or four or 5,000 people swing. And if you're figuring those tickets are 10 bucks a pop, well, you do the math and see how much more it affected the gate. Essentially, bringing the world champion in, went, you went from making, you know, uh, uh, what, six fifty to seventy grand a show for a big show to over 100000 a show. Right. And you're getting, of course, the world champion's guaranteed, I think, 5% of the house. And I think the other 5 or 10% went to the, the booking office in St. Louis. There's still a lot of money left over, and you, as the as the opponent, are going from making you know five hundred dollars or seven fifty for the night to now a grand to twenty five hundred for one night's work. Big difference, big difference. Yeah. So you you wanted that shot, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I mean it's kind of a sarcastic way to put it, but but it'd be like, okay, yeah, I know I'm losing the champion. This is it's like, oh, they're paying me this much money to lose to the world champion. Okay, right. <laughs> you know <laughs> exactly. And, 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 to, and to my first point, if if the world champion does his job and all those guys we named were doing their job, you're probably going to get some rub off of that on their way out. So the the possibility for you to 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 draw more fans uh, than what you were normally doing before the world champion is there because because you looked good against them, right? Mm-hmm. So it may it may not last forever, but for the next month or two. You might see a bump of anywhere from 500 to 1,500 people at every show. Once again, that's that's translating from you know $500 a night to now I'm making $800 a night, $300 more a night times five. You do the math. That's mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I, I remember, ladies and gentlemen, I, I know it's hard for a lot of fans to not see wrestling as more than just entertainment. It's a business to those, especially back then. Especially back then. I think that's part of the problem with with current wrestling is. Enough of the, uh, I don't think enough of the guys, and especially not enough of the fans, see understand that's what this is. is a business. It's not about an art form. It's not performance art. It's not this or that or the other. It is. It is business it's about making money. Period. I'm trying. I got bills to pay. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? <laughs> right. Right. Now, while in Georgia, and a little bit after, I don't know if he was splitting his time at this point, but Rocky was also getting work uh, in Florida, which would have been. Uh, Eddie Graham, you know, we did an entire show on sure. Florida a couple a couple years back, and here he got world title shots against Harley Race, you know, because now we're going into the mid to late seventies here, right after uh, Jack's run, and he was a Florida heavyweight champion there, a Florida television champion, and also had the tag team titles with Pedro Morales. I'm assuming this would have been, I think, given given the time, this would have been after Pedro's uh, big WWF WWE run. Title I think, run. Yeah, I think that would have been after that. Uh, I'm just just going by by the dates because Pedro won the title. The um, what's seventy three? I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy three, seventy four, something like that. And I think about this, ladies and gentlemen. You're in the South, and you're in one of the Southern states that is, you know, not only 
diverse black and white, but there's also a fairly large Hispanic population. And you get a babyface tag team of Pedro Morales and Rocky Johnson. Tell me how that does it. That, that's the license to print money, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Come on. Are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and nobody ever said Eddie Graham wasn't stupid. I think uh, yours truly might have mentioned on our Booking 101 episode that he might have been the greatest booker of all time. I, I think that proved it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Case closed. <laughs> And then around this time, a few years after NWA Mid America, now that would have been Mid America uh, would have been what, what era are we talking now? What year? Around, around seventy six. That that would have been that Nicholas uh, type. Yeah, and, yeah, that would have been Nick. That would have been right before the Jarrett buyout or the split, as we have that wonderful episode with Dan Wilson. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the Memphis split, there. I think it looked like Rocky went with with Jarrett's side because that shortly after this he started working for Jarrett and this is really I think outside of the tag title run for Vince this might have been where people remember him most for because there was a famous angle you could never do it today because of internet and social media but Rocky had a feud with Jerry Lawler and Jerry, both Jerry's really, knew of Rocky's boxing background, so they brought Rocky in as a boxer, because this is right around the time they were doing that uh, Muhammad Ali-Antonio Inoki fight. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of piggyback off that, they did Rocky as a re- as a boxer versus Jerry Lawler, the wrestler. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, like I said, for, for – that time it was pretty innovative, but I don't think you could ever do an angle like that now. Mm. Uh, we already also, have Brock Lesnar as the champion, or you know, a championship. So I mean, what are you gonna do? I mean, we already know he's a UFC guy. I think those <laughs> days have come and gone. But anyway, <laughs> right now, NWA St. Louis that would have been uh, Mushnick in the mid seventies, yes. right? Okay, the most powerful man in wrestling. We've had that discussion before on this podcast as, as well. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the 70s, he had a little bit of a run for about a year in Southwest Championship Wrestling in Texas, which was Joe Blanchard's and territory. San Antonio. San Antonio, Corpus Christi, the Gulf, the Gulf area. Yeah. Right. And here he has world title shots against Terry Funk. Now, you may be noticing a pattern forming here with a lot of these territories that he, he's in. Like, like you said, you know, bringing the world champion in. So I think it's pretty impressive that he was able to get title shots against multiple different NWA world champions over the years. I mean, right. you know, worked or not, I think that's a that says something for his appeal and his drawing ability. Sure. I mean, you're not you're not going to put a guy like I just said, you're not going to put a guy in that position as a booker and a promoter unless one you think he's going to live up to his end of the bargain because you're bringing in the world champion to pop a house. You're also not going to do it if you don't think that, if you don't plan have plans for this guy because the whole purpose is to give the guy rub by working the world champion. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, he's definitely a figured in top guy, no matter where he goes. And, and let me go back to something you said earlier about working for St. Louis. I think I've brought this up before, but it merits bringing up again and I will continue to bring it up. If you weren't St. Louis in that era, you were you were you were the stuff. OK, mm-hmm. Sam Mushnick only ran. But he, we've brought it up before. It was, it was one. It was a one town territory. It was fancy. You know, we talked about wrestling at the chase before. Um so it was always a big, big deal in San, in St. Louis. It was the it was the head of it was the you know it was the 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 headquarters for the NWA because Mushnick that was his town. He only brought in top guys, so 
if you got called into St. Louis, even the opening match in St. Louis was big deal guys. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't like you weren't getting regional stars. You were getting the best of the guys from all the territories in the country. So if you just getting invited and booked there is a big deal. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Around 1980, this is when he started working for Mid-Atlantic, which would have been the Crockett's. And this is where right. he had the gimmick of Sweet Ebony Diamond, which mm-hmm. I, is both a hilarious and silly name at the same time, uh, at least looking at it in 2020. But uh, right. <laughs> he was a masked wrestler. I don't really know why they would have had him under a mask, my hunch. I, I don't know. This is just one man speculation. But mm-hmm. I think... It was one of those cases where maybe people would know him and recognize him as somebody other than who they're billing him as. Kind of similar to when uh, Vern Gagne brought in Dick Beyer. And instead of pushing him as the destroyer, he had him be uh, Dr. X. Right. And, you know, because he thought people would recognize him. I'm not saying I I approve of that or I I agree with it. or I I think that may have been the logic. But he had a feud with Greg Valentine over the... Television title, that's the same television title that has lineage going through to the dying days of WCW. So right. you know, even if you look to this day on those title histories, you'll see his name as a former television right. champion. And that, that was my first exposure to him outside of the magazines. And I was so young at that point, I wasn't really reading magazines or trading tapes yet. I was still just watching wrestling. And I was in my early days of being a, you know, a fairly consistent viewer of wrestling. Uh, as I brought up earlier, the, you know, the, the, he was one of the three main black stars we had here in the Mid-Atlantic Territory in that era, and they would always seem to rotate him out. One would be Rufus R. Freight Train Jones, who was a local boy. He was from Dillon, South Carolina, and uh, couldn't wrestle a lick, but was a big dude and had, had, you know, he had that rap, man. He had that gift for gab. And I know a lot of times when he wasn't here, he was working for Bob Geigel and what they would call you know central states or Kansas City, you know. Uh, and mm-hmm. the other black star we had a lot was Tiger Conway Jr., a name that's kind of been lost to time. He's one of those guys that was a you know mid to upper mid card babyface that people don't remember <laughs> unless they unless they lived here in the Carolinas. Um, and it seems to me I, I'm we're talking I was you know eight nine ten eleven years old. Um, I don't ever remember any three, any combination of those three being in the territory at the same time. So what does that tell you? Right. And we're talking 1980. So, but I do remember, you know, sweet Ebony diamond. He was a masked wrestler, like you said. Uh, and it was, it was kind of obvious if you were a few, if you had been watching Georgia wrestling, which I hadn't yet at that time, you can't hide that drop kick and you can't hide that body. You put a mask on his face, but you're not going to hide that body in that drop kick, you know? Right. And I remember that was the thing about sweet Ebony, uh, it, or sweet Ebony Diamond was that he was a very, he was often compared. And I remember him even doing some tag team matches with Ricky Steamboat for just raw athleticism, you know, and the ability to you know, throw those drop kicks and the pretty arm drags and coming off the top rope and stuff like that. You know, it's things that we associate with Ricky Steamboat for his, you know, his raw athleticism. He was often compared to him by the announcers. Uh, and, um, he was exciting. He was over. But, you know, I mean, not, not a knock on, on Rocky. So were Tiger Conway Jr. and Rufus. And, and they were both very different style wrestlers than he was. Tiger mm-hmm. Conway Jr., not so much. But Rufus R. Jones, was a, he, was a, he wasn't a wrestler. He was a brawler. You know, he was, a bra- he was JYD, but not nearly as charismatic. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he was still right. charismatic. Right. 
And Central States Wrestling, that was the Bob Geigel territory. And I think Harley right. also helped uh, run that territory as well. Yeah, he sure did. He was part owner. He, was, he homesteaded there. Uh, and, 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 and that would have been, you know, Kansas City was their main city, but they also ran like these horribly small towns out in the middle of nowhere, like Topeka and stuff, Kansas. And uh, you hear nothing but horror stories about that territory. Um, I think I think it was just there were no big towns. Bob Geigel, God rest his soul, was not the most innovative guy when it came to television. So his TV product was not very exciting. And the biggest star he had was Harley. And well, Harley was on the road all the time because when he even when he wasn't the world champion, he was Harley Race. So he was in demand for places like St. Louis and New York. Well, I was talking about earlier, you needed the big stars to fill out the, the spot, you know, the slots on your big spot shows. I'm pretty sure Harley Race fit that bill in that era, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so it's not like one of those territories. It was like Kansas City, Kansas City was not the place you wanted to go. If you were on your way out of a territory and a person said, we got you booked in Kansas City, you probably were like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard Cornette tell horror stories about when they went in there for just a couple of shots in between Mid-South and world, world Class before they came here to the Carolinas. And the guys there, they all got along with all the guys. But they literally were starving to death because the payoffs were so bad. So I, I don't I don't imagine it was any better five years before that. Do you? <laughs> no, no, probably not. But, <laughs> but right around this early 80s time as well, uh, Rocky actually did do a tour of New Japan. I found that pretty interesting. And one of the matches that he did, I think he did a couple six-man tags, but dig these names for his tag partners. Bad News Allen and Stan Hansen. <laughs> that, that's a. Uh, I don't want to uh, run into a dark alley with those two guys angry at me. <laughs> you know? No, I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. Didn't he wrestle Tiger Mask some when he was over there? Uh, it's possible. I know he had matches with Anoki and Ricky Choshu, who were literally probably the two biggest stars in the the promotion at that time. And what I, what I always like to say about Ricky Choshu is he was the man that invented the. I guess the Japanese name is. Uh, uh, Sasori uh, Kambade, but it is what became known as a Scorpion Deathlock slash Sharpshooter. You know, Ricky right, Choshu right. invented that hold. Right. I just, I maybe I'm maybe I'm Mandela effect in here, but just the thought of of Rocky with his very athletic in ring style and Tiger Mask that that's kind of a, a dream match, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially since you, you with how athletic Rocky was. Yeah, and, and and I'm not I'm really not shocked that they were his partners. When you're talking the time frame you are, uh, we've talked about Stan Hansen at length before. Um, he was this is you know the height of his uh, or not the height, but it's just the start of his becoming this, the the you know the monster star he would be in Japan. And then um, you know it, it just they're going to put the guys in together. This is the way they book, you know. Right, right. It makes sense. You know, and and so yeah, I'm not shocked that they they tag together at all. And then once again, those that don't know about Alan Coach, you know, Bad News Alan. Um, he was a guy who actually got into the business once again, like Rocky being a boxer. Bad news was, uh, was a judoka, a judo practitioner mm -hmm. who was the first American to medal in the Olympics. He won a bronze medal in the heavyweight division. Yeah. And, uh, he wound up going to Canada and being trained by Stu Hart because, uh, you know, Stu was one of those guys that liked shooters and Stu always had that, that good working relationship with Jap with Japan. And I'm, that's how, how, cause Alan had gone to, or maybe it was the other way around. Alan had been hired by Anoki. This is right after the, um, the Anoki Ali thing. So, so Anoki had this idea of, you know, being 
kayfabe, he would always book himself in the main event against guys who were legitimate shooters from other sports, boxers, wrestlers, judokas, karate guys. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And I think that I think that's how he caught Stu's eye because Stu had the working relationship with Inoki. And then and I believe at the end of his life, he might have still been an American citizen, but I believe Al, I believe Alan died in Canada, living in Canada. You know, he, he moved there. I, I believe you're right. I, I'd heard like in his final years his career was like he was like chief of security for like a major shopping mall or something like that which (laughs) 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 well and i will say this so you've got a guy you've got a tag team a six-man tag team in japan where we know enoki's all about having these legitimate guys it's uh, a a college all-star american football player a boxer and a judoka for olympic level yeah it kind of makes sense now when you think about that way doesn't it yeah definitely a trio of badass (laughs) there so Mm -hmm. It's, and badassery was very important to Noki, like we're bringing up back then, you know? So. <laughs> right, right. And this brings us to his WWE run. And this is really where I think a lot of the fans will remember him most. Because really, this was when, actually it was right before really, but it was about that time WWE was doing the national expansion. I think Vince Sr. was still running Right before, right things. before. Because right. It, it, yeah, because Vince, Vince, Vince Jr. was the one that did it. And that would have been 84 when he started. Because you got to look at the timeline there, and so many things happen so quickly, and people don't think about it. You know, he 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 gets the tunnies. We brought that up earlier, right? So now he's got his foot in Canada, and at the same time, he swoops in and takes over the West Coast because just let's be honest, San Francisco, L.A., all those places they've they've aged out, and um, you know, he tries to broker the deal with Vern. Vern says no, so he just takes all of Vern's talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And um, then there's the whole Black Saturday thing. Vince was be when Vince decided to make the move, he got real aggressive, is what I'm saying, you know. And he was very successful in a lot of ways. But this would have been right before that. You're right. That would have been right, right before he because we did the show on we did the episode the volume on on Capital Wrestling. That buyout finally happened. What 83? I think 84. I think it was late 83. Yeah, it was right before I think Starcade uh, wasn't it? Right yeah, before the first Starcade. Yeah, because I think. Shiki winning the title. I think I don't think that was a Vince Senior move. I think that was one that that uh, Vince Junior made. I, I, I think I, he might be right because I think he was trying to set up for the Hulk Hogan. Right. Because I mean, right. Hulk was the guy that Junior wanted to go with. We all know this. Mm-hmm. You know. Actually, I've also heard rumor he wanted Kerry Von Erich too. But I, God rest Kerry's soul. We we all know that how that would have worked out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> with his independence and his and he just didn't ha- he didn't have the mic skills and the same kind of charisma Hol- Hogan did you know right right absolutely I hate to speak ill of the dead but it is what it is <laughs> so this is the time that he has that tag team run with Tony Atlas who was kind of still up and coming at the time and really it was no secret to historians that there there were heat between those two guys and uh, I it's one of those things I don't want to sound like I'm casting blame on one or the other or whatever, but it seems like it's one of those things. Uh, maybe they just flat out didn't get along, but some sides paint Rocky in the bad light. Some stories paint uh, Atlas in, in the bad light. So I'm not sure what to believe, but I, it doesn't discount the fact that, you know, they did have that title run. And the reason why I had brought up uh, Vince Sr. And, and Vince Jr. is because there are videos out there where Rocky was like a guest on Roddy Piper's show, you know, Piper's Pit. And right. obviously that would have been after after the buyout, after Vin, Vince Jr. Sure. took over, because it was Vince Jr. that hired Roddy in the first place. 
another one of those talent raids he made. That was here in the Carolinas. That's where they got, mm-hmm. you know, Sarge and Piper and Valentine, but I digress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and around, so after that WWE run, after he had the, the, the tag title and that brief singles run, kind of the dawn of the Hulkamania era, this is really about the time where I, it, it seems like he was leaning towards retirement because he, he did have matches and some tours after that. Uh, one of them actually was back in Memphis for CWA, and he won the tag titles with Soul Train Jones, who now, for who, of course, in the next 20 years or so would be known mostly as Virgil. And so I, I, that just, that kind of blew my mind. Blows your mind. That. Yeah, because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like you think more of Virgil as being the more modern era and Rocky being of the, the era before that. So the fact well, that they, they do have, they do have crossover at some point there. That's the way all eras work. <laughs> right. But like I said before about NWA title shots, I mean, when you, when you add it up, Rocky had NWA world title shots against Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Harley race, and Ric Flair. So four different title holders, none of which had any short run. So no. they, this, this is really over probably about a 10 year period here. So, for that entire run in the 70s through the early 80s, when he was just doing the territories, he was enough of a draw that he was able to go against the world champions. And, and a lot of these matches, I don't know what the percentage, but several of them were actually 60-minute Broadways. And, I mean, I'm sure Jack Briscoe did that a lot. Obviously, Flair did that a lot as well. It's like what you were saying Har- before Har- about— Harley, Harley did, too. Harley did, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> yeah. But but like you were saying before about making your local guy look good. Well, when you do the 60-minute Broadway, which means, uh, you know, time limit draw, you can have that out where, yeah, he didn't win the title, but he didn't lose either. You know, right. he, and, he uh, lasted the distance with the champion. And, and and just so our listeners know, if it wasn't a 60-minute Broadway in that era, it was not uncommon at all to legitimately go 57, 58 minutes and have the champion win right at the end. Okay, you know? yeah. And so it's just one of those things. The whole point is the champion leaves the territory as the champion, but makes it in victory, or I should excuse me, I should say in defeat, the cha- the local challenger is elevated. An art form that, believe me, is completely and utterly lost, I think, on every wrestling promotion today nowadays, you know. But yeah. I also think it speaks to the gravitas of that title and the guys who held it in that era as well. We just sadly don't have any Harley races and Jack Briscoes anymore. I, mm-hmm. I, I lament that every day, but I digress. <laughs> so to summarize, like I said at the beginning, when people talk about him being the first black WWE tag team champions with the, with the soul patrol. Now I do think the soul patrol was a, was a great name. You know, I don't care who sure. you are. I think that's a great name, but he, and you but, look at, the, I mean, whether they got along or not, I mean, I think I've heard before, like they literally only wrestled together like a handful of times during that title run. Like they, when they won the belts, a couple of TVs and then like the, when they dropped the belts and that was it. And that, that, that sound right to you. Yeah. Like one was no showing and then like the other did or, or something to that effect. I, I, they, didn't, they didn't travel together, which I can tell you as a former tag team guy is odd. I, that would make sense, you know, that I would think tag teams would would travel together, you know? Right. It helps for cohesiveness, if nothing else. You're in the car, you're talking over spots and matches. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm speaking from personal experience now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think you when you think of the great tag teams of the past, whether you're talking the Rock and Rolls, Midnights, Legion of Doom, the Dudleys, Hardys. Uh, Tully and Arn, what all these guys have in common. 
They all traveled together. They all were friends outside of wrestling. Mm-hmm. So there's something for that chemistry and cohesiveness, you know, that unfortunately, you know, Rocky and Tony didn't. But I mean, look at the two guys. I I, I know Hogan had a great body. And I, I always talk about how I think Kerry was extremely underrated for that era. Tony Atlas was right up there with the best physiques in the business at the time. Am I wrong in saying that? <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, and Rocky Johnson, dude was dude was jacked, man. Brother mm-hmm. had a, had a body on him. You know, I don't think he was as carved as Tony, but he wasn't far behind. Right. And they're both good looking guys, and you know, they're both charismatic in their own way. That's just. I mean, it's 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 a no brainer. Once again, like Pedro from Morales and him, that's kind of a no brainer, you know. Mm-hmm. And and of course, Tony had had been in and out of Georgia at that point, so I don't know if they were ever in Georgia at the same time. But their you know their 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 past had taken them both through the same territory at one point. Is what I'm saying. Right. So then they they're together in the WWF. Sure. Yeah. Now, because I think Tony actually did some actual bodybuilding. I don't know. I don't think. Yeah, he was. Did, he was like but, he was like he was like Mr. Virginia, I think, or something, because he's from Virginia originally. Okay. Yeah, but but Rocky himself had very much had a bodybuilder like physique. You know, he he was mm. you know cut to the masses, so to speak. Yeah, and I think I think once again, if you know how when Booker's put together tag teams as opposed to tag teams saying, "Hey, we're a tag team, book us." Um, you kind of want certain things in one guy and certain things in another. Uh, I would bet with that team, at least, you know, just the way Vince's dad was looking at him was, oh, hey, I got the guy with the great physique who is not that great in the ring. He's real green, but he can talk a mile a minute. He's good on the stick. Then I got the veteran over here who isn't far behind on the body, but it's got the pure athleticism. And they both had good drop kicks. So mm-hmm. there you go. It just, right. you know, it's a natural fit. Right. Speaking of the athleticism, I meant to say at the beginning of the show here, I mean, Rocky was billed at 6'2 and 260, which I'm assuming means he was probably six feet and probably 230, but still not not a small man by by any means. No, barrel chested would be a very, very apt description of him. He Mm -hmm. always had a good chest and arms and shoulders. But he was so athletic. You mentioned his drop kick. I mean, he literally has one of the greatest drop kicks of all time. I mean, I don't think it's without question. Right. And one of the things that he would do, I don't know if it'd be for always for a comeback or something to that effect, but he could take a backdrop and then land on his feet. And that was kind right. of the, the start of his you know comeback, so to speak. Right. And I would argue with his drop kick. If somebody was to hold a gun to my head and say, crazy train, give me the, the five greatest drop kicks ever in the history of wrestling. He's in my top five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah, mean, me, for, me too. For, for, for modern comparisons, he's right up there with Okada. Mm-hmm. And for our fan, for our listeners, have been around a little bit longer. He's right up there with with uh, Brad Armstrong or Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, maybe so, maybe, maybe Jim Brunzel. You know. Jim Brunzel's in that probably in that group as well. Uh, one that get can't sleep on. People don't know Bunkhouse Buck when he was younger is Jimmy Golden. You know, a white meat baby face in Tennessee for his family. He it's just impressive when a guy six six and that long can get up like that. But I mean, I digress. Right, right. But to summarize some of the high-profile feuds and matches he had over the career, four different NWA world champions, uh, Russell Anoki, Ricky Choshu, Greg Valentine, all of those names, uh, with the exception of Choshu, are all Hall of Famers. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I, ah, I think Ricky Choshu's a Hall of Famer, at least in my eyes he is. Well, well, well yeah, if we're talking like a, a, a traditional American pro base. wrestling, right? <laughs> I, I was meaning it in in the WWE sense. I mean, Choshu's not in the ah, WWE man. Hall of Fame, but but Anoki is. But uh, he should be. <laughs> right, right. You can make the argument alone that it, you know the uh, the sharpshooter, you know, that he he invented it. So, 
Well, that, that brings us to the end of what I have as far as Rocky Johnson's career. I mean, obviously, he had retired by the time I had started watching wrestling. So people like like me, you know, and, and younger, you kind of more associate him as being the Rock's father. And and but, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. And like I said, he, you can make the argument he had a Hall of Fame career in his in his own right. And I know, you know, the Rock is, you know, multimillionaire, international superstar and all that and all that stuff. And regardless of your feelings on Rocky Johnson or his career or him as a person or whatnot, in the end, for The Rock, I mean, that's still his dad. You know, right. the, the, no amount of money can, uh, you know, put away that hurt, so to speak. So I do definitely put out my condolences thoughts prayers uh you know well wishes to you know rock's family and rocky and uh, you know not in a basically the, you know he was part of the uh NOIE family so you know sure. pr- probably the most influential family in the history of wrestling so yeah. you know in re- regards to what you think i mean the, the guy definitely had a career for uh the history books yeah i, I like i echo the same sentiments my condolences to his family um i know he's polarizing a lot of the uh, guys I know from his era have mixed feelings on him. I never met the man personally, so I can't say one way or another. Um, uh, he, he, right or wrong, uh, I, I, I reiterate what I said earlier. He broke barriers, whether you liked him or not. Um, uh, he, it was not easy being a black man uh, in the South in that era especially as a star and yet he did it and he won titles and we didn't list all of them because there's too many to list, but he legitimately was a champion in almost all these territories we talked about, you know, mm-hmm. he held titles at one point or another. Uh, that's impressive. You don't get the runs. He talked about if he wasn't figured in to make money, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's that in and of itself. Uh, and just, I mean, look at the guy. He was a good looking dude. He, he had a pretty good rap. He had a great body. He had just a pure athleticism uh, that that is very unusual in this business. Obviously, you have to be a good athlete to do what we do, uh, but some guys are obviously better athletes than others. Uh, he was in that uh, you know better than others category, <laughs> and so he merits our respect for his historical importance alone, uh, and the the audacity and the tenacity to deal with it. I'm sure. Because I've heard horror stories, I am I was friends with Burhead Jones and other you know black stars of that era, and they've told me just stories that are just cringeworthy uh, of some of the things that they got uh, being black stars here in the South in that era. I can't even begin to imagine. It's it's, it's you know fortunately we have matured as a society. I hope and we, those days are behind us. Uh, but to forge ahead like that and do what they did is amazing. Um, he, he, he is a hall of famer. Any way you look at it, uh, I know people like, well, he just got in the hall of fame cause rocks his son and they wanted <laughs> rock on the, on the show. No, Rocky Johnson deserved to be in the hall of fame period. Both of them, Don't, really. both, both him and Peter. Yeah. Yes. Without question. And yes, it was nice that Vince got the biggest movie star in the world right now to be on his hall of fame show. That's not, that's not why Rocky got in Rocky got in cause he deserved to go in. Because he won right. titles everywhere he went, he was a top guy everywhere he went. His athleticism, his his physique, his his. Uh, yeah. I wonder. You brought this up, and I and I and I hate to, I hate to be the you know the one who would say this, but it it it's definitely food for thought. 
it's possible they put the mask on him here in the Carolinas because he was a good-looking guy. And they were afraid that some of the guys in the crowd would get upset to see their, their girlfriend swooning over this good-looking baby face, especially white girls. And he was mm-hmm. that good-looking. You know, um, one thing that you didn't bring up and I wanted to bring this up at the end, I find it kind of ironic, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, he had just brokered a deal or as far as I understand, and had become a member, an advisory member on the board with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame just a few weeks before his death, like oh, back okay. in mid-December, back in mid-December. So um, kind of ironic, you know, on the way out, he's, you know, uh, at the end of the day, um, I've said this before, and I'll say this again. I think our listeners have heard me say this before. There are a lot of guys that come in and out of the wrestling business that I don't know, and a lot that I do know. They're still my brothers. And no disrespect to any of our listeners, there's a bond that we have that you guys just will never understand. Um, We appreciate you paying your hard-earned money to see us do what we do. Um, But he's a brother, so and he's not with us anymore. So that 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 upsets me, you know. Even though I never met the guy, and uh, even though I've heard different stories about him. Never did me wrong, you know? So <laughs> I always am sad when a brother dies. There's a few that probably I won't shed a tear over. But this is one that it bothers me because he was he was very important to what we know as pro wrestling being today. I think with his athleticism and his in-ring style, a little faster pace, a little higher flying, uh, the integration of, of, you know, of people of color into the business as stars, he did all those things. And I appreciate him for that. Thank you, brother. Yeah, I think uh, Trailblazer is definitely a suitable word to describe him. So that's going to bring us to the end of Classic Wrestling Memories, Volume 31. We talked the career of Soul Man Rocky Johnson. And if you like what you hear, uh, you can find us all over the interwebs. Uh, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the website. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, tune in, Stitcher, uh, you name it, you know, the, the podcast. Yes, the, wherever you can find great podcasts, you can find all of our shows. You can reply to any of the stories we have on Classic Wrestling Memories. And then the social media is TWBP Show because we're part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. And then there is uh, Behind the Squared Circle on Facebook, which is where you can find info on our uh, forums and we also do a lot of wrestling coverage there as well as like you know live tweeting and wrestling events and such so train if anybody wants to get in contact with you to talk any wrestling or uh, star wars or the like uh, where can they get a hold of you always available on twitter at crazy train underscore jb uh just to let the listeners know before i forget our plan for the first episode of 2020 was to be a retrospective of the history of wrestling in the state of texas uh, with the untimely passing of of Soul Man, we dedicated this episode to him and his memory. So that's hopefully going to be the next classic wrestling memory. Will be the 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 history of the of wrestling in the state of Texas, uh, unless we unfortunately lose another uh, brother between now and then. But that's what's on that's what's on tap. So let, let hold us to that. If if we don't, please be understand we're we're trying. We're going to get to Texas eventually. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up here. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you folks on the next Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests 
are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. So, by the way, in Memphis, the other guy that Rocky held the tag titles with was Jimmy Valiant. Imagine those promos. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Probably the only time you'll hear Jimmy Valiant and Virgil in the same sentence is that they both tagged with Rocky Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good thing. (laughs) 